Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows on our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. So I want to share with you today some of my thoughts on a new show that's called Sweet Tooth. It's on Netflix, and I started watching it because I saw I saw some posts on Facebook, some animal f- people, vegan folk, were saying that it had some animal rights themes. And so I thought I would check it out, and I did watch the full series. It's, uh, I think, eight episodes. And yeah, you know, I was really engaged. I loved the show. I have to say, I really, really loved it. Uh, But as far as animal rights themes... I think there's enough to talk about, you know, I mean, I definitely want to talk about where there was some reflection and parallel to animal rights issues, but it was certainly not an animal rights, you know, show. It was disappointing in some of the misses. I mean, some of the things they could have done, I think, uh, were, there was, there was certainly some missed opportunities, but uh, but it really was pretty powerful and I think worth talking about. So the show basically is about a post-apocalyptic world uh, where a sickness, a pandemic, has wiped out most of the human population. They don't say how many, but it certainly feels like it's more than half, maybe two-thirds or something of people are just gone dead from what they call the sick. And wow, can we relate to that right now? Uh, It's it's almost a little too close to home. It's kind of intense in that way. It's showing it's 10 years after the initial uh, sickness began uh, and, and the majority of people died. And infrastructure has shut down. There's no cars, electronics, no internet, nothing. I mean, it's infrastructure has just collapsed. And I guess I should say, you know, I'm definitely going to get into spoilers here. Um, Not too many. I'm going to go with an overview of everything at first, and then there will be some just real specific spoilers that I'll have at the end. And maybe I'll, I'll mention it there. If you don't, want spoilers and you want to watch a show clean, you might want to go and watch it and then come back and listen to this. Uh, But I'll try to be as general as possible, uh, not give away too much, but there certainly will be spoilers. So uh, just be aware of that. So anyway, a lot of people have died and from this, what they call the sick. And at the same time, children started being born half human and half animal, all different species of animals, and they call them hybrids. And it's just fascinating. So it's 10 years later, and the main, the story is focused on this main character of Gus, and he is a young hybrid, a 10-year-old hybrid boy who is half deer, and he has these sweet little ears and antlers Uh, And he is really adorable, and you just fall in love with Gus. The show overall, though, is really dark. So if you're not ready for (laughs) post-apocalyptic, you know, dystopian, pandemic uh, awfulness, you know, I I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, I kind of dig those things (laughs) at times. Um, So I was good with it. it. I really, really liked it. Uh, especially because of this hybrid concept. So these kids are born hybrid. The pandemic is blamed on them. And there are doctors working on a cure and they feel that the only way that they can get the cure for this illness is by experimenting on the hybrids. The hybrids have some kind of connection to the pandemic. And so these hybrids are hunted. They are hunted down by what are called the last men, these men that have pretty much dedicated themselves now to 
hunting the hybrids uh, and bringing them to doctors for experimentation. It's really very paralleled with animals in that sense. And you really get these parallels with Gus being hunted by these men. And it's it's interesting because you get to see being hunted from the point of view of a deer child, you know? So he's he's a deer, but he's also human. So he gets to express himself like what it's like being hunted. So at one point, they end up at this Yellowstone Lodge, and they go in, and Gus looks up, and on the wall is a deer head. A deer's head has been hung on the wall like we do in human society, uh, you know, taxidermying animals and displaying them in these really morbid and creepy ways. I'm I'm hoping that people will see it that way for the first time because Gus is just appalled. He even at the beginning thinks that deer deer is his mom. He doesn't have a mom. And so he thinks that deer, when he sees deer, he thinks they're his mom. So he looks up at this uh, hanging head on the wall and he's just appalled and he, you know, you can tell he's really feeling it. And then when another scene later, when the men are chasing him and hunting him, he's screaming, you can't have my head, you can't have my head. So you feel it, you feel that horror and that, uh, that fear that someone being hunted feels, and you feel that through Gus. Uh, It's really powerful. There's also this other interesting kind of segment that's just a couple of the episodes in the middle where there's this group of kids, teenagers, they're um, young, young adults and teenagers that have kind of banded together. They're humans and they're, they've banded together and they are rescuing the hybrid children. And this was really very paralleled at first of animal rights activists, even though they're not at all nonviolent. Um, they are violently uh, rescuing the hybrid children. So that's there's no parallel there with animal rights activists as we are uh, all very nonviolent. Uh, but there's still this nod to rescuing animals. Uh, but it ends up being very disappointing, and that comes when you find that these kids actually have a tiger in their possession on chains, like this tiger's chained up in a in a cargo container, and they apparently use this tiger to execute people, the, the last men, the men that hunt the hybrids, uh, they use this tiger to kill people. So ugh, it was, that was not cool. <laughs> uh, and really disappointing. Just it could have been done, I feel so much better, so much more in spirit of nonviolence. It didn't have to be so violent as Hollywood often is. Uh, so that was disappointing. There's an interesting character in Big Man. Big Man is uh, kind of a redemption story. He used to be a last man, one of these last men that hunts the hybrids, but he was so enamored by Gus. He and Gus had a chance meeting, and he was so enamored by Gus that it changed his heart, it softened his heart, and he decided to help Gus and to, to change his ways. And I love a redemption character, kind of a Han Solo type, the bad guy turned hero. So that's what Big Man is. But it's also kind of like a a softening of the heart for animal issues, like someone, you know, a big masculine guy going vegan uh, and having a compassionate change of heart. So I, I like his character a lot. Okay, so I mean, I, I guess there's already been a lot of spoilers, but now I'm going to get into some some spoilers that happen at the very end uh, that are kind of critical and, well, one of them is very critical to the story, so uh, definite spoilers here. But near the end, it's revealed that the hybrids were actually experiments from a lab, like created by 
scientists in a lab, and Gus was the first. He was the very first one. Up until now, everyone thought that they were just a natural occurrence that just happened in conjunction with the pandemic. And what I'm hoping is that they'll, they they didn't actually say this, but I'm hoping where they're going with this is that this experimentation on these children is what led to the outbreak. And, you know, experimenting with animals and children is what led to the outbreak. They didn't say this specifically, but but that's the impression that they're giving. And it really parallels with our zoonotic diseases uh, coming from all kinds of different exploitive interactions with animals, whether it's eating them, butchering them, experimenting on them, whatever it is. Uh, so there's definitely parallels there. And I hope that they explore that more in the second season. It, it certainly doesn't wrap up at the end. They leave you hanging at the end of the, I think it's eight episodes. They certainly leave you hanging there. You do not get a sense of closure. So just be aware of that. There is going to be a second season though coming. And so I'm hoping that they will explore this issue of the uh, experiment, creating the pandemic, experimenting on animals, creating the pandemic in the second season. So the other part that I wanted to mention that's near the end or at the very end, I think it's in the very last episode, and I feel it's so, it was such a powerful moment. They've captured Gus and this doctor is going to experiment on him to try to find a cure for the humans. And he's, Gus is wheeled into the doctor in this cage and the doctor bends down to see Gus, to, you know, kind of examine him, to look at him. And he's really enamored with Gus, just how uh, he's just adorable. You know, he's cute. He's got these cute little deer ears. And he's a little older than the other children, being 10. And I don't know, he just really was suddenly like, uh you know, this is, this is a, a little living being. And he has this moment with Gus and, uh, and he just, he, he can't bring himself to do it. He can't bring himself to experiment on him. And he makes the decision to send him back to the holding area and tells the guy, no, I don't, I don't want this one. Bring me another one. The other one that is brought to him, you know, the next time we see the doctor, he's about to experiment on this other hybrid. And he's got this awful like bone cutting tool in his hand, like the saws, you know, a medical saw in his hand. And he's going to experiment on this other hybrid child. And this child has kind of a lizard fish type hybrid. His eyes are kind of like lizard like and he's his mouth is kind of fish like and i thought wow it's so sad that because this child this hybrid isn't cute it doesn't have the cute deer ears or the sweet eyes that it's okay to experiment on this one and not gus and I saw this as such speciesism, you know, seeing one species as uh, cute or uh, beautiful or having sympathy for this one species where we just have disregard for another species just because they look different, not because they have any difference in their feeling, in their experience, in their emotions but just because of how they look. It was, oh, it was heart-wrenching and so just really a powerful moment. And I, I hope that everybody gets it, feels it, feels what I felt in that moment that if we shouldn't experiment on Gus, then we shouldn't experiment on this other hybrid just because he looks like a lizard or fish. Wow. Whew, it was chilling honestly. So this 
show has some pretty powerful moments. It really does. Uh, it's certainly, I wouldn't say that it is animal rights themed. I would say that it has some elements of animal rights themes within it, but worth watching, absolutely worth watching if you can handle that kind of intense, apocalyptic uh, kind of show. If, it, if that's your thing, uh, then you might really like it. And I certainly recommend it to people uh, w- going in with the acknowledgement that it's, it's, it's sad, it's intense, it's dystopian, but there's certainly some hope. Little Gus is full of hope and full of of just innocence and love. And Big Man is an awesome story of redemption and compassion. So yeah, I would recommend Sweet Tooth. And I hope that you enjoy it. If you watch it and uh, have more to say, if there's things that I've missed, something that I didn't catch, uh, please let me know. Email me, let me know your thoughts on the show from Netflix, Sweet Tooth. Okay, today on the podcast, I am excited to welcome Nicole Sopko. She also goes by Gopi Om. And Gopi Om attended her first yoga teacher training with the sole intention of learning more about the practice, but despite being a lifelong introvert, found the teachings of yoga to be so transformational that she couldn't keep it to herself, and she began teaching in 2005, and Gopi has completed the advanced level life of a yogi teacher training at the Dharma Yoga Center in New York, and she's also a newly enrolled student at the Hindu University of America, where she plans to pursue Hindu studies and Sanskrit. She's a vegan of 20 years, and alongside her partner, Dan, she is vice president of the natural foods company, Upton's Naturals. She's also the president of the board of directors at the Plant-Based Food Association, Plant-Based Foods Association, I believe, and she shares her home with a rescued dog named Frida and several aquatic animals, including fish, snails, and shrimp. Welcome to the podcast, Gopi. Hi, happy to be here. Yay, we're happy to have you. So I would love to start with your vegan origin story. So why did you go vegan? When did you go vegan? I know you've been vegan for a couple of decades now, I believe. Uh, Tell us your vegan origin story. Yeah, so I've been vegan since 1996. Uh, I I was 16 then, and I guess I was kind of a rebellious teenager, maybe more in thought than in action. Um, (laughs) I remember my, you know, I, in high school, I had read like a people's history of the United States and then Mm -hmm. I could never pass, I could never pass a history class again. And I remember my father (laughs) saying to me, like, why don't you just give them the answers that they want so that you can get a grade? (laughs) And I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do that. Mm. So Anyway, I I learned about veganism from the punk and hardcore scene and just kind of dove right in. I, you know, initially I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was going to eat, but I, I found a, I found one health food store and the rest is history. (laughs) Well, for those that might not know what, what is the hardcore scene? So it's like, um, a style of punk music, I guess. So it's kind of a, it's kind of an independent music scene. Um, a lot of people are, you know, straight edge, um, who, which, you know, means we don't drink alcohol or consume intoxicants or drugs. Um, and also veganism, you know, was often a a part of that, that whole subculture. And so that's how I was introduced to a lot of that. Yeah. I think, you know, as a sort of rebelliously minded teenager, I tried out like being the kind of rebellious teenager that didn't care about anything or anyone. And I couldn't do that. I cared about everything. So, (laughs) so I ended up becoming a straight edge vegan. (laughs) I love that. That's great. 
Wonderful. And so, uh, you are now a yoga instructor and Mm -hmm. you've gone in a very spiritual direction, uh, being Hindu. But first of all, I, I want to say for those that might not know yoga, of course, is beyond exercise and stretches. And maybe you could talk about the larger concept of yoga and tell us maybe about your guru. I know that you, your guru is um, Sri Dharma Mitra and, uh, and tell us about your yoga journey. Yeah. Um, well, I started practicing yoga like most people in the West do with kind of the posture classes, the, the fitness classes, fitness kind of classes. But um, I realized really quickly that there was a lot, lot more to this whole system that, that I became very interested in. So, you know, yoga is, is one of the, the major philosophical systems that, that has come out of India. It is often referred to, um, the, the term in Sanskrit is, is a moksha sadhana, which means that the practice, the practice of yoga is designed for us to kind of liberate or move beyond our identification with our mind and our body and to connect to something that's like much subtler, but also much bigger, much freer than, you know, that the, the identity that we're currently living in. But basically, I guess to, to talk about, you know, kind of what yoga is beyond that. And I think one of the easier ways to describe it or to understand it is that yoga, the the big difference between yoga, yogic thought and Western philosophical thought is that in yoga, everything comes from consciousness. So consciousness is, is the impetus for, for everything, for everything you're looking at, for everything, you know, for your desk, for your house, for, for everything is born of consciousness instead of consciousness being born from your brain, essentially. You know, Western scientists are trying to find what part of the brain produces which kind of consciousness? Where does all these different kinds of consciousness come from? And in yoga, that's, it's actually the opposite that consciousness, because consciousness exists, everything else exists. I don't know if I'm going too too far into a, into a, onto a tangent here. Um, Yeah, no. And and it's interesting because that in a way ties into why I'm drawn to Eastern religions and, and philosophies because they see everything as having consciousness and the whole world as really being very alive and especially animals having you know souls and and karma and everything that we do uh, and that we're very very connected to we are animals i mean that's you know of course scientifically we are animals too but <laughs> in our modern world we we separate and in, I think in, in some Western religions, we kind of separate humans out as special in some way. And there's arguments to that. Of course, yes, we, we, I, I would say that we have more of a responsibility to take care of things because of our, you know, our, mm-hmm. our, our ability to manipulate our world uh, in ways that other animals cannot. But I love the Eastern philosophies because they see animals as as us, we, we could reincarnate to be animals and, and vice versa. And so we're very, very connected to the animal world. And that's something I, I love about uh, Eastern religions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you mentioned, I, I study yoga in a traditional system. Um, so traditionally, you know, yoga is, is a lineage to practice. So you should have a teacher who has a teacher who had a teacher, you know, so I've, I study it in a lineage and my teacher is named Shri Dharma Mitra. And when I met Dharmaji, probably about 15 years ago, maybe um, a little more, I, I had already, you know, been vegan for about 10 years at that point and was a little bit not understanding how the f- philosophy was lining up in practice. And when I met Dharmaji, he was saying things about animals. He was talking about not eating them. You know, one of the things he says often is that your compassion has to extend beyond your pets. So your compassion, you know, for mo- he said, you know, that for most to, people has to ex- extend beyond what? Beyond your pets. <laughs> on your pets. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for many people, animals. their compassion for animals extends right up to the pets and then it ends. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he was talking about vegan diet and uh, that just clicked for me. And actually his guru, Swami Kailashananda was, was talking about, you know, a vegan diet when he initially came to the United States in the fifties and the sixties. So, you know, this is kind of a part of this tradition. And so it's definitely something that, that has resonated for me. Well, a lot of spiritual vegans love the concept of ahimsa. Ahimsa is a Sanskrit word. It literally means non-harm or non-harming or non-violence. But I like to look at it really as more of a deep, active compassion I actually talk about Ahimsa in episode 23, the beginning of episode 23, if anyone's interested in my thoughts on Ahimsa. But I I think that the reason that vegans really resonate with this word, I mean, you see this word in vegan culture, you know, you go to VegFest and you see this word on t-shirts and stuff. I think the reason that we really resonate with it is because we just don't have an equivalent word in English that encompasses this really deeply compassionate concept. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on Ahimsa and what it means to you and how you incorporate it in your life. The interesting thing about, you know, words like Ahimsa is is that they're good examples of how in order to really understand some you'll get concepts. Like we have to learn a little bit of Sanskrit. Like you have to, because some of these terms are just not translatable. I think for me, like a better understanding of Ahimsa has come through recognizing that it isn't a standalone concept that, you know, Ahimsa is one part of a larger system that has, you know, a lot of other ideas about conduct and, you know, just even the way that you look at the world. So recognizing that ahimsa is, you know, a practice of non-harming in deed, word, and thought, but that it also comes along with concepts of dharma and karma and understanding that discernment is part of a healthy approach to life because sometimes, you know, people look at ahimsa as a standalone concept and they're like, okay, we just, okay, so I get it. So I just be nice to everybody, which means not making anybody else uncomfortable ever. And, you know, sometimes the greater good is served by doing things that on the surface don't appear to be ahimsa because it appears, you know, I'm questioning someone or I'm, I'm calling out an action or whatever, but ultimately maybe that needs to happen in order to serve kind of the greater good. But I think understanding the totality, the the incredible broadness of yogic philosophy, and also kind of the whole attitude shift that has to come with really understanding it allows for a deeper and maybe more authentic practice or understanding of, of ahimsa. At least I, I hope (laughs) it's my hope for myself. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, it's interesting. You say, you say it that way because it's true. I think a lot of people think of spirituality and it's just all like, oh, love and peace and non-attachment and not getting involved and all of that. But or I feel that really a, a good teacher, a good system, a, a good, you know, the true uh, uh, Dharma teachings is about connecting and being engaged in the world in a positive way, but not just detaching from it. There's that aspect to it, but also taking action to help the world. I mean, Dharma, you mentioned the word Dharma. And just so uh, if people don't know what that means, it's, it's kind of, I mean, there's a lot to Dharma. It's hard to just explain, but really it's kind of the right workings of the universe or how things work in harmony in a way. And that can be on a universe level, on a cosmic level, on a society level, on a personal level, your personal swadharma is being in line with what you should be doing, how you should be living and your place in the world. And if you're fulfilling your dharma, 
Uh, and then, then comes in karma. You mentioned karma as well. And that's also uh, around all of this and, and, uh, and your conduct, what actions you put out uh, is creating and changing your karma. And this is where ahimsa comes in, because if you bring ahimsa into these concepts of karma and dharma and try to be as compassionate and cause as little harm as possible in your actions, in your thoughts and deeds, and as what you said, then everything is working more in harmony. And so, so yeah, you're right. There's a lot to it, a lot more than just this word non-harming, just the, the literal translation is just not enough. And you're absolutely right that it's, it, there's so much to dig into. And it's so, to me, it's so beautiful, the, the whole uh, unfolding of all these concepts. Well, I would love to take the conversation in a different direction now. Mm -hmm. and talk about your business. You and your partner run a self-funded, privately owned vegan business, Upton's Naturals. And listeners, you might have seen this product in the vegan deli section. It's like a seasoned uh, seitan product uh, from Upton's Naturals. And you have also a cafe and a donut shop or a retail space in Chicago Tell us what that journey has been like to open and run a very successful vegan business. And I believe Upton's Naturals is in several countries now too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we sell, um, I don't know, 20 something products now in about 20 countries around the world. So we're, wow. we're, we're doing a lot. And I've been with Upton's Naturals for the past 11 years. Um, so the company is owned by my partner, Dan, um, 100%. So we have been operating independently. Um, the, the business, we're celebrating our 15th anniversary this year. So we've been operating independently, which is, ex is has now become extremely rare in the natural food space. There's a lot of people investing a lot of money in vegan foods and natural foods in general, but vegan foods and meat alternatives specifically. We don't have outside money. We don't have investors. We just have two uh, vegans and then, you know, an incredible team. <laughs> it's been interesting. Um, you know, one, uh, one thing that I think is kind of indicative of the change in people's consciousness around vegan foods is um, when I first started with Upton's Naturals, I remember our product said 100% vegetarian on it. That's what the label said on it. And I remember several years in um, the conversation that we had where we were like, ooh, maybe we can change it. And we changed the label to say 100% vegetarian slash hundred percent vegan. Cause we thought, okay, maybe people are now starting to understand what the word vegan means. And then after a few more years, we were able to remove the part that said hundred percent vegetarian and make everything say hundred percent vegan, you know, and now our package talks about, you know, being cruelty free and animals and, and all kinds of things that, you know, before I think just weren't on people's minds, you know, people didn't even necessarily know what the word vegan meant as an indicator. So the, you know, the world in that way is definitely changing. It's been definitely an interesting process to, to experience that as it's happened. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love to hear that progression. So tell us a little about the product. It's seasoned seitan, which can be used in place of meat. There's different seasoning, different flavors. Tell us a little about the product. We started out making seitan, which was, you know, our first kind of our, our, our beginning was as a seitan company. Um, seitan is a meat alternative that's minimally processed. We say it's about as processed as a loaf of bread and has really simple ingredients. And from there, we've expanded to more minimally processed and even whole food meat alternatives like jackfruit and banana blossom. Um, we have some meals now. We have some soups, we have a vegan mac and cheese and all of that, you know, we try to hold on to that kind of recognizable ingredients, minimal processing. And I get question about that, especially now the way that 
vegan food is going, you know, the, the media and people are very focused on, on technology and technological advancements in meat alternatives and in vegan foods, which I don't personally have an objection to. I think, you know, it, it takes all kinds. People are certainly interested in all kinds of products. And for us, like our focus is, and will remain, you know, with, things that are a little bit simpler that are going in a little bit of a different direction. So that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're also kind of very interested in creating things that you're not already finding on the market. So, you know, we're not, we're not worried right now about launching another burger or another, you know, another thing that you're, that you're finding on the market. We're trying to do things that are different and, um, and interesting to us, the kinds of foods that we like to eat. Yeah. And so you mentioned jackfruit, which we we actually just got a can of jackfruit recently. And um, what did we make? We made uh, taco meat with it and had tacos and it was really good. And then you mentioned something else, banana blossom. Mm-hmm. So what is, is that actually the blossom of a banana tree? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 So, you know, jackfruit is a fruit and, um, and banana blossom is, is a flower. You know, these things are make great alternatives to me. You know, like I said, like, we're not trying to create one-to-one alternatives that match up exactly in every single way, but there are things that you can include in your diet instead of meat. And they're simple. They're whole foods. It's definitely what motivates us is to, is to do things that are a little bit different and, and, and interesting than what you can already, you know, find on the shelves, at least at, at my supermarket in Chicago. <laughs> you know, one thing that we tried to do just, I guess, just to say something about the can. Um, one thing that we tried to do is to really create the smallest environmental footprint possible when it comes to, you know, importing something that's grown in Asia. Um, Jackfruit, for example, is not grown in a substantial enough quantity in the United States or anywhere nearby. So since it doesn't grow, it's not cultivated in a substantial quantity uh, closer to the United States, you know, we're, we're importing from Asia. But one of the things we tried to do is that we pack it in a, in a shelf-stable, um, what's called a retort pouch. So it's, it's just in a pouch um, and it's just the jackfruit. So we don't add any additional liquid or water, try, try to keep the package as light as possible so that we're literally only, you know, we have to bring things on a container ship. We're just bringing the finished product jackfruit. So we're not bringing any waste. We're not bringing any additional water. We're trying to keep everything um, as environmentally friendly as possible. So I want to ask you about your lawsuit. So you were involved in a lawsuit where you, and I think maybe it was Upton's Naturals or something, some entity, you got to tell me who, sued the entire state of Mississippi for their meat alternative labeling laws. I think they were trying to limit what you could say on the packaging. So tell us about this. How did it start? What was the lawsuit? What happened? Yeah, one thing that's come up um, because uh, the FDA, who you know regulates what we can put on our package, has you know kind of declined to address the issue directly of meat alternatives and also dairy alternatives. One of the things that's come up is that states are starting to pass their own law, individual laws, and a lot of those laws are written by the Cattlemen's Association and are put forward by um, politicians who, you know, are, are, are supported by or supporters of organizations like the Cattlemen's Association. So you know, Mississippi is one of the places that passed kind of a restrictive labeling law that, that said, like, these certain kinds of words um, belong to meat products only. So for example, like words like burger, 
And, you know, our argument from the perspective of um, people who make meat alternatives is that burger isn't an indicator of any kind of one specific ingredient. It is instead um, an indicator of usage. So people understand if I have a burger, I'm going to put it on a bun and I'm going to put these kinds of condiments on it and whatever. And if, you know, now there's all this, you know, things people are joking about because in in Europe, they're saying, you know, call it a plant disc or whatever whatever. Um, and, and, and also like societally, we've sort of already accepted that a burger can be made out of a cow. It can be made out of a Turkey. It can be made out of a, you know, a salmon. So, you know, why not these other ingredients? You know, it doesn't, the, the word burger doesn't tell me anything about what's actually in it anyway. And then the, the state of Mississippi also their law, I think, um, it made it actually a criminal, offense, um, punishable by up to two years in prison, um, (gasps) for, for who we don't know. Um, because the thing about a lot of these laws is that they're passed and then they go into a rulemaking process, which can take an additional several years where they actually decide how they're going to enforce the law. In the meantime, they may be enforcing the law with, you know, the judgment of whoever has been tasked with that, but without formal enforcement procedures. So does the supermarket, does someone from the, from the grocery store go to prison? Does the distributor go to prison? Do we go to prison? You know, who who goes to prison for selling a vegan burger? Um, Wow. (laughs) So a, a suit like that needs an affected plaintiff. And yeah, despite the fact that the ag commissioner and and all these people in Mississippi had never heard of Upton's Naturals before, um, we put our name and our selves out there and yeah, ultimately ended up with a favorable result in the state of Mississippi. And now, you know, different kinds of challenges are going on in different states it's definitely a tactic that the meat and dairy industry, the animal agriculture industry is trying in order to limit the availability and our the capacity for businesses like ours to sell our products. Uh, they're, they're definitely engaged in, in that pretty heavily right now. Well, uh, let's take it as a good sign that they're scared <laughs> and concerned uh, that we are becoming more powerful and more a, a more generous part of the market. So yeah, but that's it's just so ridiculous that they would try to uh, say what you can say on the packaging. How 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 un-American of them, right? <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's definitely not the actions of a government that champions a fair market and free speech. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you're also the president of the board of the Plant-Based Foods Association. And the Plant-Based Foods Association is the only trade group in the U.S. that works for the benefit of vegan food brands. So explain what this organization does. And I know that you sometimes go to DC to actually lobby for vegan foods. Is that right? Tell us all about that. Yeah. um, The PBFA was founded several years ago. Um, We're a trade association. So we're, so our members, our voting members are other brands that make plant-based foods. This organization was founded so that we could kind of put our collective power together in challenging things like, you know, this law in Mississippi, Mississippi, or, you know, trying to prevent other, other legislation like that from happening or educational purposes for our members, but also that same kind of education for representatives and other governmental bodies. So I've had the opportunity to, you know, speak give presentations to some of those, um, some of those regulatory bodies in the federal government. Also, yes, to go before COVID, to go to Washington, D.C. and, you know, go meet with a lot of those legislators. At that time, you know, the Dairy Pride Act was being pushed very actively, which strictly defined dairy, says something about it coming from a four-legged hooved mammal. And, um, (laughs) 
And, you know, most, uh, honestly, most of the, most of the legislators, and this isn't, you know, nothing negative about them, actually, they looked at that and they, they looked at that little inclusion into, you know, cause it's trying to be added onto something else, a farm bill or something else. They looked at that inclusion and, and it doesn't register for them. Yeah, fine, whatever. You know, it doesn't seem like a controversial topic, but when you go and you speak to them and you say, Hey, like, actually, here's what the implications of that are for our industry. Here's what the implications of, of something like that are for, you know, all these makers of vegan milks. Then they say, oh, okay. Yeah. I understand now why it's in there. It seems like a strange statement, but I under, they understand also now the motivation and also where that, that can create confusion. Cause again, words like milk give people an understanding of, of usage, right? Like if you call it a beverage or a drink or whatever, a liquid, what do you do with it? Like, how do I know what I'm supposed to use this for? Um, that's why we have, you know, coconut water and coconut milk because they're different things. Yeah. You don't pour a beverage over your cereal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's also interesting that they'll often say that it's confusing that like, oh, it's confusing to have dairy or milk on this vegan product or burger on this vegan product, you know, that word. But what's confusing to me is if they don't want to use the word milk, then, then it's confusing because it is milk, right? I mean, it's it's funny that they use that excuse because it seems mm-hmm. like it would just create more confusion to not be able to use those words. Yeah, not only that it's confusing, but that we're being deliberately manipulative or that we're deliberately trying to hide the actual you know, the reality that our product is actually a vegan product. In my case, I couldn't be more proud that our product is a vegan product. It's yeah. like the best thing about it. So <laughs> it's a point of pride for, for us and for most of the other people in our industry. So it's definitely not something that we're trying to hide. Well, and any, any of those products you pick up, it's going to say almond milk on the front. It's going to say, you know, whatever jackfruit on the front. I mean, it's not, it's not like you're hiding what it is, you know, there's the ingredients listing. I mean, frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to ask you about something in your bio. You said that you live with some aquatic animals and we recently had someone on the podcast who rescues fishes she actually uh, has different situations where she brings fish into her home and into her life. And she has like 70 fishes in her, uh, in her home. So what is it like to live with these little aquatic creatures and how did they come to live with you? Who do you have? Yeah. Um, well, some are little and some are larger. Yeah, I have um, currently. I have soup. She is a she is a, a fish, a, kind of a bigger orange fish. She's maybe I don't know six inches long, something like that. She she is a blood parrot cichlid. She came from. Um, a store that was closing. Uh, I and with her, I have a uh, maybe almost a foot long, bright yellow fish called a golden dojo loach. He looks like a banana, like a swimming banana. Um, <laughs> he came from a friend's tank. Actually, he outgrew her tank, so he moved in over here. I have, um, and, and I just want to be clear yeah. with the, with the, uh, the store that was closing. You didn't buy the fish. Probably they were just giving fish away. We wouldn't. We don't want to buy necessarily a fish. Is that correct? Yeah. These, these, these individuals are, are all rescued. Okay. Yeah. Just want to, yeah. want, want to be clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. I have a um, placostomus who is, was also being given away on Facebook. I have some snails that, you know, their tank companions passed away. And so people decided they didn't want to keep a tank running anymore. I have some smaller fish that, you know, kind of the same thing. They were the last individuals in their tanks and people didn't want them anymore. And so, so yeah, they end up here and yeah, I find them really quite delightful. (laughs) That's wonderful. I love it. I love that. It seems to be kind of a new, new area that we're moving into in the vegan movement and as vegans to be rescuing smaller creatures, little tiny and aquatic animals. And I love that. 
Yeah, they definitely, I mean, they definitely all have their personalities. They all have their, you know, they, they all have unique things about them. And they also have, you know, really individual and specific needs and wants. So trying to keep them all happy is, is a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love that. So Gopi, we, it's been great talking to you. We really should wrap up. And I like to ask all my guests this, so I'll ask you as well. What gives you hope for the future? The thing that, that gives me the most hope for the future is that things are always changing seemingly for the, for the better. You know, there's a lot of things that seem to be changing seemingly for the worse. But if you look for it, you know, look at the amount of, vegan restaurants and vegan options that are in every part of the world, looking at, uh, you know, the fact that we're here having this conversation right now, you know, all of these things are, are changing the re the resources that are available, the conversations that are happening, the, the options that are becoming available to people. Um, I just think it's amazing. And I, I think that the, the future is in many ways going to be really beautiful. <laughs> wow. I love that. I, I hope so too. I feel that as well. I feel that we have that potential to create a really beautiful future. And I love that you are part of that. Thank you for the work that you're doing to create that beautiful future. And it's been really lovely to have you on Gopi. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for having me and having this conversation. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I have a couple more tidbits about Sweet Tooth. Just really fast, after listening to the recording of the review, I forgot to mention that one of my favorite characters is another little hybrid child who is part pig. And she's part pig and she kind of squeals and snorts and oinks when she laughs. And it's just super adorable. I just had to mention her. I love uh, her character. And an interesting connection. The actor who plays Big Man is Nanzo Anozi, who was one of my favorite characters in the TV show Zoo. He played Abe or Abraham in Zoo. And Zoo is another TV show that has animal rights themes, but kind of in a completely different way. But it was cool to see him in Sweet Tooth, and I recognized him right away. Zoo is kind of a cult favorite for animal rights people, and I have a feeling that Sweet Tooth will become that as well. So it's cool that he is in both those shows. He's an excellent actor, and I, I just love him. Okay, so that's it for today. If you're still listening, thank you. I, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate your support. I would so appreciate it if you would help us out by scrolling down uh, to those stars if you're on your phone and give us a five-star rating, maybe write a review, share this episode or another episode with your friends. If you're a Facebook person, hop over to Facebook and like and share some of our posts on our Facebook page. It's so fun and rewarding for me to spend this time with you, and I, I want our community to grow so we can continue to do these podcasts into the future so please help to support and promote this podcast in any way you can. We're all in this together. We're going to create a better world for animals with your help. So please do all that you can do and live vegan.